Hope you took my little clue of our scripture reading of the underlining there for the theme of what we're going to be looking at as you open to Genesis 24. And as you open there, we're going to look at the whole chapter today. And I just want to tell those of you who are I-daughters and T-crossers that uh, I'm going to be a little bit like Alistair Begg in only one respect. Believe me, only one respect. And that is that we will not have a third point today. If we had an evening service, I would do as he does, which is the third point would be the evening service. Wilmer, Wilmer McLean, a name that we probably don't know. He was a small farmer in the Shenandoah Valley in 1861. In the spring of that year, two powerful armies met on his property. The Union Army under General McDowell and the Confederate Army under General Beauregard. The bloodiest war in American history began at Bull Run, a creek that ran through McLean's property. McLean was not at all sure why these armies were fighting, but he was quite sure that he did not want them fighting on his property. If he could not change the course of the war, at least he could have absolutely no part of it. So he decided to sell his property and go to where the war would never find him. He chose the most obscure place in the whole country, an old house in the village of Appomattox, Virginia. Four years later, General Grant pursuing General Lee through Virginia. In Appomattox, Grant sent a message to Lee asking him to meet him to sign a truce. The place where, they're signed, where they signed the truce was Wilmer McLean's living room. Why do stories like that fascinate us? Why are we gripped by that? Why, as I looked out here, do some of our jaws actually open when we realize those things? I think it's because what we call incredible coincidences. You've got to be kidding. In McLean's living room, it started and ended there? Really? What the world calls twists of fate, the Christian calls God's providence. And that's what we have before us today, a fascinating, amazing, gripping story of God's providence. Look with me at chapter 24. God's word says, Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he had, put my hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not 
take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I'll give this land, he will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for him, for my son, from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you must not, you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must swear not to take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abram, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well at the time of the evening, a time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulders. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled the jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran to get well water. And she drew all for the camels. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped God. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of the master's kingdom, kingsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out to the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah's sister, Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for your camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed his camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. 
and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has been greatly blessed by my, uh, blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my, wife, my master's wife, bore a son to my master. And she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from the son for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send an angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you'll be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you'll be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if, I now, if now you are prospering the way I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking, in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with a water jar on her shoulder. And she went down into the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please, let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will get your camels some drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and a bracelet on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me to the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me. And I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord had spoken. Then Abraham's servant heard their words, and he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me. Since the Lord has prepared my way, send me away that I may go with my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. 
So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servants, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Bathroi and was dwelling in Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Oceans have deep currents called thermohaline circulation. The currents beneath the surface of our oceans circulate the water around the earth. You can't see them. You can't feel them. But they move the earth's oceans. We read a story like this, and we say, how did all this come together so perfectly? This is amazing. I mean, everything seemed to just be timed perfectly. Some even read this story as proof that the Bible is indeed a fiction, a made, made up, because it's too perfect. We're tempted to get sucked into that type of thinking. We swim in the waters of the world of coincidence and doubt every single day. That's the language of the world. Today, we have to learn a new language. And that language is the providence of God. You have to learn, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that nothing, nothing is a coincidence. So what is providence? What is God's providence? It's made up of two Latin words. I'm indebted to Mirus Academy here because I'm learning Latin with my kids. Pro, meaning before or forward, and video, meaning see. So it simply means to see forward. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, states God's providence this way. The Almighty and everywhere present power of God where by his hand he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herb and grass, rain and drought, fruit and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yes, all things come not by chance, but by the fatherly hand of God. Catechism teaches us that the Bible knows nothing of chance. God's hand is the undercurrent of everything that's happening in our life. I think Hebrews 1.3 states it really well, as plainly as anywhere in Scripture. That verse tells us the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining everything by the power 
of his word. I think that's what Paul was trying to get across to the Ephesian church when he wrote, In him we were all chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I think that's exactly what Jesus was relaying when he said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of God the Father. I think Vernon McGee, dear sweet Vernon McGee, puts it so well. He says, Providence is the hand of God in the glove of human events. He goes on to say, Providence is the unseen rudder of the ship. And that's what we're meant to see so clearly in our narrative today. That's why this chapter is, is preserved for us. God wants us to understand that that. Yes, he's sovereign, and that's some kind of distant theological rubric that we have. He's sovereign, but he's sovereign in the events that happen. There's no coincidences in Christ. And we see that in the first nine verses, that Abraham trusts in God's providence. Abraham trusts in God's providence. It's been several years since Sarah's death. And in verse 67, we see that, that Isaac is still affected by that. He is still mourning. He's not married. He's pushing 40, which probably is not as old as we think it is. He's lonely. And he's still mourning his mother, Sarah. And we see Abraham's heart here, don't we? He looks at his son. He looks at his continence. And he calls his servant over, his dear entrusted servant. And he makes him take an oath. Go back, go back to Haran and find a wife for Isaac. Find a wife. And we cannot proceed in talking about God's providence without first making note of, of how Abraham still has the promises of God at the forefront of his mind. It's all over these first verses. Abraham in his old age still is, is trusting in the promises that God gave him those many years ago in chapter 12. Yeah, Abraham is concerned about finding a wife for Isaac. But we see here that Abraham is most concerned about what God is concerned about. That's a good lesson for us. He's most concerned about what God is concerned about. The promise. The blessing. The scarlet thread that weaves its way throughout the whole Old Testament. The promise of the snake crusher. The promise of this Savior that is coming. Isaac is the promised child through whom the blessing is going to come. So brothers and sisters, when you read about the blessing going on from generation to generation, that's the blessing. And Abraham knew this. So his first step in fulfilling that promise is making sure that Isaac has a wife. Can't go any further until then. But we see that after he asked the servant to go to the area of Haran in the northeast, he asked his servant, his servant asked a question. And that lets us see Abraham has another of God's promises in mind. Look at verse 5 with me. 
In verse 5, the servant said, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which he came? And what is Abraham's emphatic answer? He actually says it twice. No. Listen clearly. Do not take Isaac out of this land. Yes, we're still pilgrims. But this is the promised land. See, Abraham still has that promise on the forefront of his mind. This is the land. I just bought a little teeny bit of it as a down payment. This is the land we're promised. This is our home. May not look like it now. But this is our home. My goodness, I didn't even write this in my notes, but boy, doesn't that sound very familiar. But we also see that Abraham does not want just any relative, do we? He wants a relative who has the same faith as he does. He has the spiritual, spiritual purity of his people in mind. Why go all the way back to Haran to get a wife? Well, he says it right there. Don't marry any of the Canaanites. Because Abraham wants Isaac to marry in the faith. In verse 3, Abraham prohibits his servant from allowing Isaac to marry any of the Canaanites. I like how Fatibi and Mali puts it in his sermon on this text. He says, The Bible knows nothing, nada, nil, about the racial prejudices that we have in our minds. The Bible only knows that all are descended from Adam and Eve. There's no prejudice here. In other words, there's, this is not a racial thing that Abraham has in mind at all. We lay that over top. That's eisegesis. What we see here is that Abraham is spiritually motivated. From the very beginning, and this is the very beginning, from the very beginning, God's particular people must marry God's particular people. This is the first marriage of God's particular people. And Abraham is saying, don't marry outside the faith. Christians must marry Christians. You know, we read 2 Corinthians 6.14 about being unequally yoked, and we think, boy, that kind of dropped out of the sky. Not at all. It's rooted right back here in Genesis 24. The first marriage. Abraham knew that if Isaac married outside the faith, it would be an unmitigated disaster. I had an email this week from a Christian woman that I know who's getting married in two weeks to someone she knows is not a non-Christian. She said that she had prayed about it and that she has peace about it. Her reason for contacting me was to ask what I, quote, think life will be like and how to manage it. It took me a couple days of back and forth in order to talk to this woman. And it was a hard conversation. It was, it was hard to talk truth. 
I called her, and as gracefully as I could, I told her that she may be at peace with this. But God isn't. That if she's serious about her faith in Christ, her life with this man will become increasingly difficult and separate. That she will never be able to share the deepest, most emotional part of who she is. That she will have to make increasingly difficult decisions as she goes along in life, choosing Christ or not choosing Christ. And that her time, her emotions, her thoughts, and her priorities will be bifurcated, will be pulled in two different directions. See, Abraham knew that this decision was an either-or decision, not a both-and decision. And, and here I speak to those who might not be married here. That's true of you today, too. As, as, as you go along in life, you might become emotionally attached to a man or woman who is not a Christian. I want you to know that Deciding to marry that person is an either-or decision you're making, not a both-and. Either you choose your faith in Jesus Christ, or you progressively choose to walk away. So Abraham has faithfulness to Yahweh on his mind and the promises of God on his mind, and he petitions his servant to find Isaac a faithful wife for Isaac, and the servant asks how all this is going to come together. He goes, he's asking the same question we are. How is this all going to come together? And Abraham tells him in verse 7. He says, he, God, will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son. See, Abraham is trusting in the providence of God. He's trusting a lot on God being inside the glove of this whole thing. He's trusting that God is already at work, that he's ahead of this, that all this work out because God is sovereign in all the coincidences that we say. That God's providential undercurrent will bring together his servant with Isaac's future wife. I tend to agree with Tim Keller that all great movies have gospel themes in them. I tend to agree with that. And one of my favorite movies, I've mentioned this before, is The African Queen. It's a great, great movie. I encourage you to watch it and then look for the gospel themes. There's one scene at the end where they have come down this river and they are beached on this mud flat. They have fought their way through the delta. You remember towards the end of the movie, you know, they're hacking through pulling the boat. Charlie has to get out of the boat and pull the boat. And Rosie's out front hacking through, trying to get to this, this, um, this lake. And they finally end up on this mud flat, beached. They're both resigned to the fact that they're finished. 
thinking they're about to die and Charlie has this fever and he kind of drifts off and Rosie, the missionary Rosie, is there and she prays this, this, this prayer of resignation of dying. I don't think the director, John Houston, was a Christian. But boy, did he show God's providence. Do you remember in that movie, at that scene, what happens is he draws the camera back and you see what they cannot is that they're about 100 yards away from the lake. Remember that scene? Then he does something even more interesting. John Houston pans and does a slow pan upriver all the way to the head waters where there's a torrential rain happening. And you see that the river is swelling and he follows it down river and the river has become rapids because of this rain coming down. And he goes all the way back to the delta and you see that the, the water level is rising in the reeds and it's starting to rise on the mud flats. Houston probably did not know it, but he's illustrating perfectly what Abraham believes. What Abraham is saying, God is going ahead. God is, is orchestrating all of this. He's already preparing Rebecca 500 miles away to come perfectly at the perfect time. Is that how you approach life? As, as a believer, do you approach life like that? This was part of the challenge this week for me. Do I approach life like that? Do I really believe that? Or am I more like Charlie and Rosie on the mudflats? You know, a hundred yards away and I can't see it. I'm living by sight. Oh, let me pray this prayer of resignation. I guess God's not there. Am I living by sight and not by faith? Am I living hopelessly, resigned to being on those mudflats? I don't know the circumstances of your life. I know some, but I don't know all. But I want to encourage you, God is at work. It might, you know, we watch the movie and we think, well, Rosie and Charlie woke up the next morning floating on the lake. Can't God act in that type of time frame? God's at work. It might be a day. It might be a month. Brothers and sisters, it might be years. But the rains are raining. And it'll eventually get to you. So Abraham trusts in God's providence, but his servant experiences God's providence. And that's what we see in the bulk of our text today. This servant experiencing, bumping into God's providence as he goes along. So the servant, in verse 10, packs up these ten camels and the gifts, the bride price, and he heads to the northeast, to Haran, about 500 miles away. And he gets there about three or four weeks later and comes to the city of Nahor and decides to go to 
the well outside the city. We could rename that in our text. That's the Starbucks. Okay? He prays a very specific prayer in verses 12, 13, and 14. Did you notice that? Lord, providentially, Lord, providentially help me identify the woman for Isaac by having me give, ask for water, and her in response not only give me water, but water my camels. When we read that, we just read right over it. And we go, okay, yeah, there you go. We have no idea what this prayer is really asking. My mother used to say, you're asking for a cloud in a megaphone here. You're asking for a very clear working of God. Let me explain. In the typical ancient Near East, a well was a large hole dug all the way down to the groundwater. It could be very deep. And carved out around the sides of stairs going down. And so, this woman, women would come out and they would take about a three-gallon jug and they would walk down the stairs and fill it up and walk up the stairs. A camel would normally drink about 25 gallons of water at a time. Again, Mira's helping me with my math problems here. You do the math. That's 250 gallons of water divided by three. That's over 80 trips down into the well and back up. Down into the well and back up. That's hours of work. So he is asking for something pretty big, something you cannot miss. He's not asking for, Lord, you know, move that leaf. This is going to be, take a long, long time. And in verse 21, after Rebecca comes out and she gives him water, she offers to amazingly water the camels. And he sits back and it says in 21, he watches her. Not for five minutes, not for 50 minutes, but for a couple hours going down, water in the trough, going down, water in the trough. This is an amazing, amazing woman. And he's gazing there and he's thinking, could this be the one? Is this God working right here? It sure looks like it to me. But there are three more godly providences that have to happen. And the first one is, is she a relative? I mean, this could be an amazing woman, but she's not related to me. And Abraham told me, has to be a relative. And so he goes right over to her and he asks her in verse 22, he gives her gifts and he asks her and she says, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, born to Nahor. 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 Chapter 11. That's Abraham's brother. This is a relative. And he is overcome. Did you, did you get that? Again, don't, don't read... Scripture dispassionately. He's overcome. Look at his response in verse 26. He, he instantly bows down and he realizes and gives praise to God. He worships God because of God's providence. Right there on the spot. Brothers and sisters, that is the correct response when you see, when you bump into God working in your life so obviously. Just pause. 
and praise God. He acknowledges that this is God. This is not a coincidence. And brothers and sisters, we have to learn to do that. Otherwise, we will, because we swim in the world, we will start thinking, oh, that's a really cool coincidence. Oh, that's a really great happenstance. No, this is God with his hand inside the glove of your life. But everything is not yet all set. There's another providence that is needed. Will the parents let her go? And here we learn a critical principle about God's providence. A critical principle. And here it is. It's hard to interpret God's providence in your own life. If you're note takers, write that down. It's really hard to interpret God's providence in your own life. We need help. That's the reason for the bulk of this chapter, verses 34 through 50. The story, um, the servant recounts the whole story, doesn't he? Who's he recounting it to? The parents, Laban and Bethuel, right? Talks about Abraham and Isaac, his oath, his prayer, Rebecca's incredible service and answer to that prayer. And then in 49, look what he says. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. If not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. What's he saying there? He's saying, what do you think about these circumstances? He's sitting with the parents and he's going, here's what happened. What do you think? To put it in modern, modern parlance, it's saying, he's saying, I think this is a God thing. What do you think? That is a great lesson that we need to learn. For independent-minded people like ourselves that want to do our own thing, that are constantly thinking about what's best for me, this is a really good lesson for us to learn from, from this servant. We need to realize that we need others to help us confirm God's providence in our lives. You and I both have had the same experience many, many times over probably. A Christian friend or a family member or a fellow church member comes to you. And maybe a time of prayer request or maybe just comes to you because they want to describe an amazing providential experience that they've had. Circumstances that have come together that have occurred in their lives just like this servant. And they tell you how God has worked in their lives, opened doors, answered prayers, etc. And then they say, here's what God has done, and here's what I'm doing. Have you had that experience? This is how I interpret this. And so this is what I'm going to do. Now rejoice with me. This servant gives us the godly example of how to be humble and come to your brothers and sisters in Christ. He lays it all out and says, what do you think? That's a biblically humble approach. And God calls all of us to be humble and come and ask. Come and ask 
your brothers and sisters. Instead of a, come and tell. God has given us, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, look around this room for this very purpose. This is a key role that we play in each other's lives. And elders, by the way, this is a key role that the church should come to us and ask these things. Helping to interpret God's providential actions in your life. I dream of a time when at coffee fellowship or after worship or in small groups or in the day-to-day just relationships we have with each other, we're asking each other these questions about the circumstances of our life. This is what's going on in my life. And this is how I think God is working. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Help me interpret this. Because Blake Brown is so selfish and self-motivated that I'll choose what I want to do 99 times out of 100. I need you to help me, to quote Jerry Maguire. Well, Laban and Bethuel think God is at work here, don't they? In verse 50, this thing has come from the Lord. Take her and go. But there's one last providential circumstance that has to fall into place. Will Rebecca go? Big, big decision. Don't just read right over that. It's more than likely that she will never, ever see her family again. Ever. So Laban and Bethel decide to leave it up to Rebecca. Will she go or will she stay? In verse 57, she says, I will go. The Marisside Maritime Museum in Liverpool, there hangs a 100-year-old unused transatlantic ocean liner ticket. It's the only first-class ticket that was not used on the Titanic. It belonged to a Liverpool clergyman named Reverend John Stuart Holden, who was unable to make the journey because the day before he was to sail, his wife got ill and he decided to stay with her. After the ship sank, Holden hung the ticket in a simple cardboard frame and underneath it wrote Psalm 103.4, Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Reverend Holden saw the providential hand of God in that, in his wife even getting sick, helping him to stay. And in verse 58, we see the providential hand of God working, allowing, softening Rebecca's heart to be able to say, Elek. One word in Hebrew, Elek, I will go. One word. With one word, she forsakes her whole family to go with a stranger that she met hours before to a land she doesn't know to marry a man she has no idea who it is. She agrees to become Isaac's bride right there. Now certainly the main point of coming together of Isaac and Rebecca is God's great providence. 
But I want you to see something else in this story, too. As we read and reread, we cannot help but see that there is a pattern here. There is a type here of how we become the bride of Christ. You see, Isaac went through his experience of his sacrifice and resurrection in chapter 2 before Rebekah even knew who he was. Then the faithful servant left home to find her when she was still, still ignorant of Isaac's even existence. Didn't even know he existed. When the servant find her, finds her, he initiates contact and then asks, Will you go? Will you go? As Donald Barnhouse wrote, she was thought of before she knew it and was chosen when she did not even know the existence of her bridegroom. This is the experience of everyone sitting here who claims Christ. You had no idea before you, you heard of Christ that he lived the perfect life on your behalf that he did something that you can never do? You had no idea that Jesus actually said, take me instead of Blake. I will take Blake's penalty. I didn't know him before. He did all this way before my even existence. And he rose from the dead before I even knew the name of Jesus. And he sent his Holy Spirit to seek me. And if you're a Christian, he sent his Holy Spirit to seek you and make initial contact with you, not for himself, but for his master, Jesus. And then he asks a simple thing. Will you come? Same question. We all come to that exact point in our life when the gospel is preached and the hand is extended and said, will you come? Will you leave everything you know for him? Your family sometimes? Sometimes the place, you, the geography? I had no idea I was going to be in Maine. I had no idea. And it wasn't on my radar. This is what he asks. This is a picture of how we become the bride of Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I want you to know that you're not here by chance. God wanted you here. He guided you here providentially. He wanted you here this morning to hear this very gospel. This is your opportunity to become the bride of Christ. This is your opportunity to say, I will go. Because right now, God is saying, will you come? This is your opportunity to repent of your sins, to ask forgiveness, and to receive from Christ the forgiveness, love, peace, and hope of eternal life that is only found in Jesus. Now, if you're sitting here today and you are a Christian, you have said, Alec, I will come. 
this table, this table is a way for you to say, Yashav, I will remain. This table is for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And by, by so taking the bread and by so taking the juice, we're saying, I pledge to remain. I've already come, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying. This is you re-covenanting with your God. And that's exactly what was on the back of Jesus' mind when he said those words on that day. This is my body. Broken for you. And he took the bread and he broke it in front of all of their eyes. And he said, you deserve this, but I will take it on your behalf. That's what we're proclaiming as Christians, aren't we, at a very basic level? I deserve death. But praise God for Christ. Praise God for Christ. He has done it on my behalf. Invite the elders to come up as we serve his body and proclaim again his victory.